0: I used to work at mental health care. My insurance there covered my medications, but not my therapy nor the surgery. So I took a job at another place, but this place, you know, the insurance pays for my surgery. I've had to kind of change careers, make a lot less money. I've actually been homeless for a few times because of, because of that. But yeah, just to have insurance, just to be able to get the surgery. I loved my old job. I wish I would have been able to stay there.
1: This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Karis. On this edition of Outcasting, we take a look at issues faced by transgender people in getting appropriate health care because of problems in the health care system. Joining us for this discussion are Dr. Marcy Bowers, a transgender surgeon in California who treats trans patients, and attorney Michael Silverman. Much of this program was created before the start of the COVID pandemic, but when we recorded these interviews, Michael was the executive director of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. We also talked with Jessica, Billy Ray, and Brittany, three transgender women who have experienced difficulties in dealing with the healthcare system. Most transgender people experience gender dysphoria, a feeling of distress that results from a conflict between their gender as they experience it and the gender or sex they were assigned at birth. Gender dysphoria can have a serious negative impact on people's ability to live happily and fully, and it's what motivates many trans people to transition, socially or medically, and sometimes both. Gender dysphoria is recognized and defined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, which is an authoritative guide used by healthcare professionals. Treatment for gender dysphoria can include social transition, which can include asking people to refer to you and treat you as your correct gender, and medical transition, including hormone therapy or surgeries. For some people, social transition is enough, but for people who feel the need for medical treatment, hormones and surgery can be considered medically necessary as treatments for gender dysphoria. Nonetheless, it can still be very difficult for trans people to access these medical treatments. The problems that trans people encounter in the healthcare system don't stop there. Even for regular medical care, unrelated to transition, trans people often face discrimination in the healthcare system. There are unaccepting, biased, or ignorant doctors and other personnel, insensitive or discriminatory policies, and inadequate insurance coverage. And these can make healthcare for trans people stressful inaccessible, or even harmful. Dr. Marcy Bowers told us about problems people can experience even finding a trans-accepting physician.
2: It's very difficult, even in major cities, for trans patients to get help with any sort of problem unless they have an already established relationship. And generally, most cities have a, a small group of providers who are willing providers, and they see the vast majority of transgender persons. But anybody else... You know, it's just, it just doesn't happen very often. People can't just show up to a and make an appointment with the doctor. A lot of times what has to happen is they have to talk to the nurse to make sure that they explain the situation, you know, that they might be post-op or something and they might need some health care. And uh, still, more often than not, they're turned away because the doctor says, oh, you know, sometimes they have their own moral objections, sometimes they have just an ignorance objection. Sometimes they have a feeling like, I just don't want to get involved. I hear things like, you know, in my male-to-female patients, I hear a doctor say, well, I wouldn't even know what I'm looking at. You know, it's like, well, what do you think you're looking at? You're looking at female genitalia. It's not like we put things in a different spot. So there's a huge gap right now, and it's the the overall um, access to, to care for trans persons I would put it at abysmal, slightly above abysmal in the U.S.
1: One of the first steps for trans people pursuing a medical transition is to find a therapist, if they don't have one already. Many doctors require a referral letter from a mental health professional in order to prescribe hormones or perform sex reassignment surgeries. Having a therapist is often a valuable resource for many trans people to help them through the transition process but it can be difficult to find a therapist who you know will be accepting and supportive because there are few therapists who specialize in trans patients. Brittany told us about her experience.
0: One of the first things you do when you're trying to transition, one of the most important things is like getting on a medication, like hormones, and you have to see a therapist. Well, trying to find a therapist that was, for one, trans-friendly, and two, um, that had knowledge in the area. Like, I did a lot of research on the internet, and I couldn't really find anyone in my area. So I ended up going with a ther- therapist that I just randomly found on the internet, and she does, like, canine therapy, which I thought was pretty cool. So I gave her a chance, and, um, like, I ended up getting really lucky. She had never had a trans client before, and I ended up teaching her a lot of stuff, which was kind of cool, but trying to find a therapist was, like, the hardest part.
1: In addition to finding a therapist, another step in accessing gender-affirming medical care is figuring out how to pay for it. This is especially difficult because many trans people don't have insurance that covers trans-related treatment. It wasn't until fairly recently that insurance plans began covering gender dysphoria treatment. Medicare began covering most sex reassignment surgery in 2014, and some private insurance plans are now covering certain treatments deemed medically necessary. Some states, but certainly not all, require insurance companies to cover gender dysphoria treatment. Michael Silverman told us that even after New York began to require that insurers cover trans patients equally, some insurance companies still denied coverage, stating that they don't cover gender dysphoria treatment. Many trans people have to fight their insurance companies for medically necessary procedures through the appeals process, with no guarantee of success. And even insurance plans that cover treatments they consider medically necessary, like hormones or sex reassignment surgery, may not cover transition-related procedures they classify as cosmetic, like facial feminization surgery or laser hair removal. Both Billy Ray and Jessica lacked insurance coverage for any of their transition. Jessica told us that she struggled to pay for necessary treatment on her own.
3: Well, there's no insurance that would cover anything. I had to pay... Out of pocket for every everything from hormones to every piece of surgery that I've had to electrolysis to laser to psychology. Every every square inch of it, I have had to pay out of my own pocket. So it's it's taken a while. I don't have a house anymore. I you know I mean I'm starting from scratch again. You know, but uh, it is what it is. I mean it's just completely. You know, I mean, I had to be who I am and it was extremely difficult, but it was either that or die. I mean, I my last real difficult before I, t- um, before I transitioned, I did a massive a t- suicide attempt and I spent 10 days in a psychiatric hospital and the doctor said, you have to transition. And that's when I came out and I did it. Basically sold everything I owned. And went for
1: it. Brittany, another of our guests, did manage to get insurance coverage for her medical transition, but she had to switch jobs to get it.
0: That's actually been like one of the hardest things. I used to work at mental health care and um my insurance there, they covered my medication, but not my therapy nor the surgery. So I took a job at another place, which I make a lot less money, but this place, you know, the insurance pays for my surgery so um i've had to kind of change careers make a lot less money i've actually been homeless for a few times because of of that but yeah just to have insurance just to be able to get the surgery but yeah i've been like working at a different place for the past like a year and a half just fully for insurance, so I can get the surgery and that for, you know, anything else. Yeah. Um, I, just, I just wish my old job, because I loved my old job. And I wish I would have been able to stay there.
1: Insurance discrimination doesn't exist only in coverage of transition-related procedures. Trans people's bodies often don't match what the insurance company assumes they are, based on the person's gender marker on official records. This can lead to procedures being denied. Billy Ray.
4: Obviously having breast tissue for for many, many years, they wanted to do a mammogram. And the problem with that is, is, you know, your birth certificate says male. The insurance company says, well, no. um, We pay for that for females, but not males.
1: Dr. Bowers.
2: You know, it used to be that if you you mark the box and it says person's male and they're undergoing a hysterectomy, you know, that claim would get denied because obviously we don't do hysterectomies on males. Fortunately, with some of these health care mandates now, those claims are not being denied as commonly as they used to. But the same problem exists when you order, a let's say, a, a PSA, which is a prostate-specific antigen, on a woman who happens to have a prostate, things like that continue to get kicked out at times and not paid for. Ordering a, a mammogram on somebody who's still pre-op, a biological male, know that can be a problem. So whenever there's a gender mismatch and there's some gender-specific treatment that's being recommended, that can lead to problems for the individual, either getting it covered or getting it approved or paid for.
1: Beyond external factors like insurance coverage, medical providers themselves can create barriers to medical care for trans people. Many medical providers mistreat or even turn away trans patients, making it less likely that they will get the care that they need. Michael Silverman.
5: We've had transgender people report us simply being denied care. I won't treat you. We've had transgender people report that one hospital staff learned that they're transgender. They changed their housing situation, for example, to put a transgender woman in a room with men, a lot of people, most uh, transgender people, would feel extremely uncomfortable in that situation. So when your doctors, when your nurses when hospital staff are treating you badly, the chances that patients are going to want to be there and that transgender patients are going to want to be there are very low.
1: Billy Ray told us about her experience being denied care by the Veterans Administration.
4: How did that feel? If they me, it's like rejection. It's you know it's it's like looking for a mate you know you're you're looking for somebody and then all of a sudden it's rejection and you actually thought that that mate was the perfect one and now all of a sudden you find you know you're you're being rejected from them so I mean you know it's the same thing you know you're looking I was looking for medical treatment from the VA and and because of the fact that I allowed them to understand more about me because they were obviously now taking care of more of my medical life. That instead of them just embracing it and saying, okay, yes, it's not service connected, but okay, yes, we understand, it became more of, we don't want to treat you anymore, or we don't want to help you anymore. Even with your medically, even with your service connected disabilities, it became an issue.
1: This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. Online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about issues faced by transgender people in getting appropriate healthcare because of problems in the healthcare system. Joining us for this discussion are Dr. Marcy Bowers, a transgender surgeon in California who treats trans patients, and attorney Michael Silverman. We're also joined by Jessica, Billy Ray, and Brittany, three transgender women who have experienced difficulties in dealing with the healthcare system. Even if trans patients aren't explicitly denied care, they may still be mistreated in a way that reduces the efficacy of their health care or alienates them from the healthcare system. One problem is refusal by healthcare providers to recognize the correct gender of a trans patient. Jessica said that before she had sex reassignment surgery, some office staff insisted on considering her male. But she told us that it doesn't happen as much anymore
3: up. I had a few different things and, you know, just arguments saying, no, you're male. And they say, no, you know, I'm going through my surgery. Well, no, and they would insist on writing male and just, but that was also five, six years ago. You know, you get some of these sticklers that want to follow exactly by the rules, but, you know, nowadays they change it around. People are a little bit more
0: accepting.
1: Brittany, who works in mental health care, recalled a misgendering incident she heard about from a coworker.
0: A patient had been admitted into the into the hospital and she was transgender. All of her identification had her um birth gender on it. And then she was like adamant saying that she was female. And then the staff wanted her to prove that like made her pull her pants down and then from what I heard, the staff were just really rude to her. You know, made her sleep on the floor in the in the day room, which is like a big open area. She didn't have a private room. So that was one of the horror stories. I've seen a lot of people in there who get misgendered all the time. And then when the patient's not in ear sight, I've seen um, providers like laugh or make jokes about them. Stuff like that. And also other patients, too. And the mental health facility has a lot of patients, like you know, between twenty and thirty, all in one big area. And usually, the trans patients get like singled out. They get forced to sleep in either a room that they're not like what their what their birth gender is, or they'll be forced to like sleep in the day room when they're not on any kind of precaution, like suicide precaution or self harm precautions or something like that. So they'll kind of be singled out and forced to do things out in the open. It was kind of weird though, because I was on top of being like a provider on top of working in a mental health facility, I was, um, I was also a patient at one time. And um, I was afraid that that kind of stuff would happen to me, but I didn't have that bad of an experience. Like I, they put me in a room with all female patients. They use like the correct pronouns and everything. They did ask me a little bit about my medication but when, when I was a patient, I, w- I didn't get any of that negative treatment. So I guess I was kind of lucky that, that time.
1: These kinds of harassment can cause significant discomfort and anxiety for trans patients when they're seeking medical treatment. Even trans patients who have not experienced serious harassment may still worry about the possibility and therefore feel anxious about going to the doctor's office. In addition to having the correct gender denied by office personnel, Another source of anxiety for trans patients can be when they are involuntarily outed. Michael Silverman.
5: To give you an example to try to paint a picture, we might have John in a gynecologist's office because John has certain anatomical parts that are traditionally associated with women, even though he has long since transitioned and has been living as John. He may have a beard. He looks entirely male. He is entirely male. And then there are a bunch of women sitting around the waiting room with John, and they might be uncomfortable. They might be wondering, why is this man here at the gynecologist's office? So it can also create a situation where this individual is in a situation where he's outed in a moment where he really doesn't want to be, and he may be feeling already uncomfortable about having to have these parts of his body examined. And so there are just huge disincentives to seeking out care for people in that situation.
1: Brittany told us about things that make her feel vulnerable in the doctor's office.
0: My hormone doctor is a is that an ob So sometimes, depending on how how I'm dressed that certain day or something, I'll it looks, did I go in there by myself, and some of the other patients in the room kind of like look at me like, what are you here for by yourself? I've never got anything bad from the staff. But from other patients, I get kind of like a weird look.
1: Billy Ray,
4: they're listening to your heart and stuff, and all of a sudden you feel their hand move around a little bit, and obviously they can feel that you're wearing a bra. And then all of a sudden they they become standoffish, you know, because obviously the medical records from the VA obviously knows me, quote unquote, as a male from 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 many many years ago from being in the military. So it. You know, you got a problem with a binary world, you know, they, they just don't understand.
1: Unfortunately for many trans patients, having to come out, or being outed, is often unavoidable. Between official records, physical exams, and the possibility that one's trans status may be relevant to their care, trans patients often have no choice but to be out. Billy Ray, for example was getting health care from the Veterans Administration before coming out as trans, and she came out there so that they would start treating her as female. She told us about one medical professional who began treating her differently after she came out.
4: It went ballistic the first time I told that individual. Um, you know, it, it was... It was... Uh you know, it it was awful, you know, they all of a sudden you get, they, you know, started treating me, treating me with, you know, rubber gloves and, you know, acting like I was a leper or, or had some disease or, or I'd been carrying out some type of, you know, um, doing something wrong with my body to the point to where, you know, that, that all of a sudden it, 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 I was being treated like they were, I was contagious Um, And they still, that I know that one particular individual still treats me that way. Um, And like I said, it's hard to get them changed. Uh, That's just the way the VA system is.
1: Many doctors, even those who mean well, are simply uncomfortable dealing with trans patients. This can lead to bias and prejudice that compromise the quality of care that trans patients receive. Just under a year after having sex reassignment surgery with Dr. Bowers, Jessica said she went to a local gynecologist for vaginal bleeding.
3: I go in there, and she looks at me, and she doesn't put a spreader on there. She just looks on the outside and says, it's um, granulation tissue. And I said, well, no, it's coming from inside. I'm bleeding on tampons. And she goes, no, it's not. I'm not going inside. She goes, it's granulation tissue. Um... And I had asked her previously, had she ever dealt with a, a post op woman before? And she said yes, numerous, four or five, six times down in Los Angeles. And um but she and I had asked her, I told her numerous times, please look inside, there's bleeding. And she said she refused, basically. And she says, No, it's coming from the outside, it's granulation tissue, and she gave me an ointment. And the ointment was like 200, about 175 dollars, right under 200 dollars, and put it on the outside, not inside, and use it topically, and it should go away. Well, it didn't go away; it got worse. And I made another appointment with a different doctor. Same identical thing. Did not open me up. Did nothing. Um, and I uh, refused to go inside. And I. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if she had dealt with post-ops. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think she had. And, um, and then, so here's two different doctors and said the same thing. It's granulation tissue. And I argued with them and I, I pulled out a tampon while I was there with her and I said, there's blood on it. And she goes, oh, it's from rubbing on the outside. And they, did, they refused to believe me. So, um. I made an appointment uh, with Dr. Bowers uh, and she put me up on a spreader, you know, on the leg. My legs were up. She went inside of me and she got angry and she's looking inside of me and she's got the light inside of me. She goes, I go, and I told her that I never looked inside of me. And she's all, seriously, they never went inside of you. And she goes, I need to do a biopsy. And she kept her mouth shut. And she, you know, and she did it. But she was cussing and saying that these doctors are idiots. Why didn't they look inside? Blah, blah, blah. So she made it. She said, make an appointment for the following week. And um, and so I came back and she had done the biopsy. Or, you know, she told me it was a um, a pap at the time. And, uh, you know, biopsy. And she came back. I came back the following week. She sees me in the hallway and hugs me. And she goes, honest to God, Jessica, I thought you had cancer. She goes, you have an HPV virus. And we went inside and we discussed it. And she goes, um, they would have, I had to have another surgery that cost me about $5,000 to go inside and do a, um, cauterize it all inside of me. Marcy had to do it. and. and she says, if they would have caught it, if they would have done that medicine, would have taken care of care of it at that early of an age. And she goes, from now on, I am your gynecologist. And she had relocated to California by this time. And so since then, she has become my gynecologist and because I don't trust anybody. So I do a four or five hour drive to go get a pap smear, you know, every six months. And I had to have about a four or five, $6,000 surgery um, to remove because these doctors did not even bother to look inside. You know, two different doctors. So, yeah, I've had issues. (laughs) I lost some depth on it, and I've gone through some extraordinary pain.
1: One of the things that frustrated Dr. Bowers about the situation was that the other gynecologists couldn't see past the fact that Jessica was trans. They seemed to assume that her problem was related to her surgery, rather than recognizing that she could have the same health issues as any other woman. Many doctors have trouble properly recognizing trans people's health situations and needs. And so a lot of trans people feel that they need to practically become their own doctors, taking their care into their own hands. Billy Ray.
4: I've had to literally learn that, you know, if I've got, you know, this little pain from this little certain area or something, you know, it might be something to do with, you know, what's going on inside of me. And, you know, and I, and I have to learn, you know, you know, I got to go tell the doctor, look, I need this medicine for this. You know, so, I mean, I've literally, you know, had to learn to be able to speak, um, what would you call medical ease, you know, talk to them in their terms, you know, in order to get, a lot of times here lately, in order to get what I need. Um, Because, you know, you basically have to educate yourself so that you can educate them. Um, You just can't go pop yourself in the the doctor's office and say, you know, this is this is it, you know, Um, because they're still going to look at you with skepticism. But if you walk in with a lot more knowledge about yourself, then their skepticism usually is is melted away. And, you know, they realizing that you're wanting to take care of yourself. So, I mean, you know, I, I have that benefit that I've actually spent, you know you know, uh, uh, enough time studying my condition to the point to where I can go in and ask for what I need and get it.
1: In addition to having to educate themselves about their own care, some trans people may choose not to come out to their medical providers in order to avoid bias or uncomfortable interactions. Brittany told us that that can make things awkward.
0: I've had quite a few, like, hospitalizations. I found out I had some, like, heart problems. So one of the big questions Whenever you go into a doctor's office, the first thing they ask you is, when was your last menstrual cycle? I would always answer, like, I've never had one. And then, you know, there would be those questions like, what, you've never had one? What do you mean you never had one? Like, And then recently I just started saying, oh, it was two weeks ago. Just to, like, kind of avoid those awkward questions. And then a lot of the doctors, like, when I tell them what medications I'm on, they kind of, like, give you that, like, puzzled look, like, why are you on these medications? What are they for? And you have to explain to them what it's for, what's going on, and they still kinda of seem, for the most part, pretty clueless.
1: We've run out of time. On the next edition of Outcasting, we'll continue this exploration of issues faced by transgender people in getting appropriate health care because of problems in the healthcare system. Our guests have been Doctor Marcy Bowers, a transgender surgeon in California who treats trans patients. And Michael Silverman, an attorney who, when we recorded this interview, was the executive director of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. We were also joined by Jessica, Billy Ray, and Brittany, three transgender women who have experienced difficulties in dealing with the healthcare system. This program was written by Outcasting Youth broadcaster Andrew Two, and produced with the participation of Outcasters Adam, Andrew One, Brianna, Dante, Drew, Jamie. Joseph, Josh, Lauren, Lester, Lucas, Max, Michael, Natasha, Nico, Nicole, Nikki, Sarah, Sydney, and me, Karis. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Outcasting and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is a nonprofit organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Alright, I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under connect. I'm Karis. Thanks. And thanks for listening.
5: If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media.
4: Thanks.